Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hello. Hey, hey, hey. Max, what is happening on this week's show? This week on the show, Ben Smith. He is the media equation columnist at the New York Times and uh, he's broken some big stories recently. Aaron, I know that you in particular have been paying attention to Ben's work. I am an Aussie news enthusiast. It's the story that just keeps giving to me. And uh, he he gave birth to it. And I'm very interested in this interview, which I did not know was happening until this very moment. The downfall of Ozzy is one of the biggest and certainly most like viral media stories of the last several years. And then last week, Ben wrote about the German tabloid Bild and its editor. In both cases, the columns had huge impact on the people he was writing about, their lives, their businesses, their jobs changed very, very drastically, very, very quickly once Ben decided to write about them. The other thing I think is worth noting is that we've had Ben on the show before, but unlike almost all of the repeat guests that we've had on, his job has drastically changed since the last time I talked to him. When I talked to him uh, last, he was the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News, and now he's a columnist at the New York Times. So he was like uh, running a newsroom, piloting this rocket ship, and now, as you'll hear, he's just like tripping over computer cords in his house, making phone calls. Changed teams. He changed teams. He uh, he changed teams. But really, it was just, it was fascinating to talk to him, particularly in this moment when he's coming off this run of scoops. And we talked about scoops themselves, both like how they come and how scoops beget more scoops and also why he's kind of addicted to scoops. But we also talked about what the experience of breaking these stories is like, what it's like to see all this fallout from your work. So it was a good one. Speaking of changing teams, we've changed teams from no teams to Team Vox. We produce this show in partnership with them, thanks to them. And now here's Max with Ben Smith. Hey, Ben. Hey, Max. Thanks for um, having me over. Thanks for coming over. We're in what appears to be your like junk room in your house. It's more a kind of transitional liminal space. So it's a, <laughs> which is also sort of how you just described your brain to me. Yeah, that's right. You're like a little bit of a transitional liminal space. I'm interested both in how your brain is right now, but also how your inbox is right now. I mean, the great thing about scoops is that they generate more scoops. What the fuck is showing up for you right now? Like you must know so many things. Yeah, I mean, I know a lot of things about me. I mean, I already kind of knew a lot of things about media, but I definitely have gotten a lot of tips about, you know, about all sorts of things, including like medium-sized HR problems in German newsrooms, mm -hmm. which are probably not stories I'd follow or things happening in, you know, big American companies that I'm interested in. Are you seeing lots of things that are surprising to you? Yeah, I'm always surprised, I think. Really? Yeah, I think you sort of have to be ready to be surprised and open to surprise. I imagine at least you must be also just like the recipient for so much axe grinding. People must be coming to you with their vendettas, right? 
I mean, that's true for all reporters all the time. I know, but you're now in a different space than you have been. I guess, does it feel that way to you? No, I think, I mean, I guess not really. You know, in any kind of beat, mm-hmm. you kind of get hot and have a good streak and then write some boring stuff for a while and it cycles <laughs> in and out. Yeah, you're on a roll. Yeah, I've had like a really good month. Yeah. And, and and when you are on the roll, that's like a moment to sort of, for instance, tweet, hey, does anybody have any more scoops, which I did the other day. <laughs> I saw you do that. It made me kind of think whether I should have like tweeted, does anyone have any questions for Ben before this interview? I find that kind of thing incredibly effective. Okay. I mean, I got so many good tips from that tweet. Really? Yeah. People were like, what are you doing? This is so dumb. But it's a reporting trick somebody taught me a long time ago. It's like often... The way people, reporters try to get scoops, which is how I try to get scoops too, is you take somebody out to a bar and you like have a long conversation, you are interested in their life and you ask them all sorts of things. And at some point you try to like edge into some subject that maybe you actually want information on. And that is actually a good way to get information. But another way to get information is just to be like, hey, do you have any information? <laughs> like, obviously I'm a reporter and I want information. It's not like some secret. And it's actually like often you can have a better relationship with a source when you're obviously totally on the level and you're not trying to trick them into giving you something. Kind of makes me think that I should tweet right now, like, does anyone have any questions for Ben? Do it, and then we do can it. do like a lightning round at the end. All right, we'll yeah, see if anything good. comes in. I'll, I'll retweet it. Okay, great. Great, fantastic. Hold on for a second. Hold on. How are you still typing? How long is this tweet? <laughs> I'm not good at this. Yeah, your sh- short form is not your your preferred form. No. <laughs> no one's gonna. No one is gonna engage this tweet. It's gonna be like it's gonna be awful. Long. I was thinking, as I did some other unrelated thing, that I <laughs> could interview a person and like you're gonna put the the lead at the very end. Let's just shut up for one second. Let me write in it. All right. I've sent it. Uh, right. We'll see what comes back. Unfortunately, like, I'm not really on Twitter and I'm not. I retweeted you. So, so hopefully some of my stands will engage. <laughs> okay, great. Great. All right. We've now opened this up Ben Smith style for questions, which is good. But while we wait for them to pour in, can you articulate what being on a roll is? Oh, and I don't really mean like, I mean, I haven't been a columnist long enough to know what it's like being a columnist, really. I just think as a reporter, you break some news and then often breaking news generates other news. But there's a specific kind of news that you have broken this month. New news? You know what I'm talking about. Don't like be coy about it. You've broken scandal news that has crazily blown people's lives and jobs and entire quote unquote publications up. That's a different kind. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, like good scoops are things that somebody didn't want you to know and they didn't want you to know it for a good reason. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, those are the ones that hit. Has this month been fun? I mean, it's really interesting and intense. How so? Because you hear a thing and you're like, and I mean, in the case of that Ozzy story in particular, you think there is no way that's real, (laughs) that somebody had impersonated a YouTube executive on a phone call with Goldman Sachs. You sort of think that's too good. Uh And then you think, and if it's true, it's going to be so hard to confirm. And then it was not hard to confirm. That was actually the part that was most amazing to me. What was the order of operations? Like, how do you go about reporting it? Somebody told me. You think about who might know and you call them. <laughs> that was it. That's it. I feel like it's such a weird digression, but like I'm a partly like Irish American heritage. And so like I'm very prone to skin cancer. And so you have to go in and like see a dermatologist and make sure that or maybe everybody does. But anyway, I'm very fair. I sunburn a lot. And so this dermatologist was like complaining to me that like doctors these days aren't trained for like they are only trained for 11 years, not 15 years as it used to be or whatever. And I was like, you wouldn't believe it. But like in my profession, there is no training required at all. (laughs) He was like, no way. I was like, yeah, like you just kind of go out there and there's no skills. You literally are like, who told me this? I will call them. You know, like it's, there's no mystery. But you can get better at it. Yeah, you can get better at it. But actually, I don't think you can get that much better. It's mostly you just have time. And like the main way you can get better is sort of a volume game. If there's a hundred people who might know and you call all hundred of them, you're going to be better off than if you just called the 10 who are most likely. Like a lot of it is just work. It's just grinding. Yeah. But there's something about the grind that's also sort of uncomfortable. Like, can you develop like a thicker skin? Can you get more like shameless about it? 
Yeah, it's definitely. I mean, it is. There's something kind of antisocial about journalism. There's something weird about it, mm. about asking people uncomfortable questions and nosing around people's business. I mean, in Jewish law, there's a prohibition against gossip, against lashon hara, which is like a lot of what we do. Yeah. And I think, you know, there is a sense that there's something a little immoral or morally strange about nosing around secrets. I don't know this for sure, but my sense is that you feel none of that strain. I guess I'm not that reflective a person. Well, I'm asking you to be. Yeah. No, I mean, I don't, I don't sort of reflect a lot. Yeah, but... But I mean, like, I don't feel, I don't think a lot about what I'm doing. When you're calling up to confirm that Ozzy was posing as a YouTube executive on a Goldman Sachs fundraising call, are there any like butterflies in your stomach? Or is there so that any- is a thing you probably get over, just you've been doing this a long time. I mean, also there's a certain kind of story that is just sort of irrepressible. Like if you heard that story, it's like hard not to tell people. You're almost relieved when a reporter calls because you're like, Oh my God, I've been like holding on to this incredible story and like <laughs> I'll be able good. to tell my friends now because it'll be in the paper. You know, like yeah. there's a certain kind of story. And I think it's true of a lot of stories. Like when there's something really crazy and interesting, people want to talk about it and it's hard to not. Did you know as you were like closing that column, this one's going to light the internet on fire? You know, I didn't. I thought this one is going to be incredibly interesting to people who have heard of Ozzy, which is like, media world insiders you know there's a small world of people and i think i underestimated the extent to which a just like people love deception and b like the extent to which this kind of situation is really about like the mirror it holds up to the person who's being deceived and you have this first this kind of silicon valley billionaire thing where like lorene powell jobs is so powerful and important that basically other people invest as a way to be close to her and to be associated with her and that like she's sort of the pawn in the center of this thing Mm -hmm. it was just so revealing like you know when the emperor doesn't have any clothes you sort of see the other forces at work and then more recently the desire among billionaires ad agencies you know television producers to be like aligned with this diverse young company led by this black guy promising this new kind of content that both seem to totally respond to this like moment last summer of real soul-searching around race, but also to threaten no one, challenge no one, produce no content that would actually make anyone uncomfortable ever. And by the way, that's not totally true. There were some great stories in Ozzy that did that, but the overall brand was basically diversity with no conflict. And I think mm-hmm. like if that felt too good to be true, it was. But I think it did sort of reveal things about the people who fell for it. Could you see all that as you were reporting it? Or is it only in hindsight that you're able to sort of see those big sweeping factors? Yeah, I th- I guess I always start with, I'm pretty tip driven. Like I start with details and want to find sort of a really interesting story. And then I guess in the writing tend to figure out what I think it means. Because my sense with that column, particularly the first one about Ozzy, was that in a way you almost underplayed the craziness yeah, that's probably right. Particularly that anecdote about the phone call. You wrote it real straight. I mean, it sort of spoke for itself. I guess so, although I think there's... It was so- the lead of a New York Times article. It's not that underplayed. That's the way that you think about it. As a reader, there's like almost a moment where you expect you, Ben, to turn and just be like, it's fucking crazy. <laughs> and that's just, that wasn't there. It was like you did have to kind of be like, wow, what? wow, wow. <laughs> Wow. wow. Yeah, I thought that's kind of craziness spoke for itself with that one. So when that does hit, that column comes out, what are the next couple days for you? Like? I mean, in that case, you know, because Ozzy had burned through so many employees, there's so many vendors who had complained about not getting paid, Yeah, you know, that I just was immediately, just to a degree that I would, was not expecting, deluged in tips about Ozzy. People who'd had bad experiences with them. You know, people who'd worked on their event in Central Park and thought they were disorganized. I mean, and the thing is, and then and then you really have to be disciplined about saying, like, what's the, sto- what's the story here? Yeah. Like, I think they were really hard on their employees and it was an awful place to work. And there were a couple of really good stories in CNN and maybe Insider about that. But I also thought, like, the bar is pretty high because what you have is this apparent securities fraud in the first story. And so you're sort of like, you don't want to then write something that's like also... Somebody had a bad experience working. You know, like you sort of just have to triage pretty ruthlessly around what's the biggest story in all of this.
Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. These last couple columns have had real impact, like Ozzy closed and then sort of pseudo reopened, but no one actually works there. The editor in Germany got fired. How important to you is impact? Is that a marker of success? You know, it's funny because I don't love the word impact. Okay. I mean, I do think the job is to report and not to obsess about not that you shouldn't obsess about the impact, but that when you think too much about what's the result of this thing, it can kind of distort the reporting and, and sort of if you're, is your goal to be accurate or is it to produce a certain impact? Mm-hmm. And if it's the latter, it's politics. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but but I, I guess I try not to think too hard about that. It's not my decision who edits build. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I was pretty surprised by that because often you're revealing things that everybody involved already knew. Right. So, I mean, specifically in the case of Build, they had done their own internal report, yeah. which is what your reporting was based on. Yeah, although, I mean, that was an interesting case because they had done an internal investigation, but it wasn't an internal investigation. They had hired a law firm to investigate. And in the German process, or in their particular process, they at least claimed that their law firm had not told them everything they found and that they had read about it in the New York Times. And, you know, at some point in the explaining of this, it's like, look, I'm not the Berliner legal Zeitung. Like, <laughs> I'm not that interested. Like you yeah. hired lawyers to look into the situation in your company and now you're telling me you still don't know what happened. And that's not only the problem of the reader of the New York Times, that is the problem of Axel Springer. I mean, I, I hate there's this, um, journalists talk about scalps, mm-hmm. which is both kind of offensive on, you know, just on the sort of merits, but also really an awful way to think about it. Like you're not, I don't think, you know, you got there trying to get people fired. Yeah. Part of what I'm curious about is what your reaction is when that impact comes. When you write a column on a Monday and by Thursday a company doesn't exist anymore or you write a column on a Sunday night and the guy doesn't have his job the next day. As a person and as a journalist, what is that like? You know, I guess I tend to feel sort of ambivalent about it. Like I don't have any personal dislike for Julian Reichelt or for Carlos Watson. And so I, you know, I like, I kind of think it, it's awful to lose your job. I mean, I, and I, I sort of, I think what Carlos is dealing with is really tough. I mean, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's complicated. Like, I don't think, 
you know, I, I guess I sort of, and maybe this is a little crazy, but I sort of separate my work from the impact pretty almost like a little religiously. Like mm-hmm. I think the job is to report on what happened. And I do sort of have like a pretty sort of ideological commitment to that. Does that come easily to you? What do you mean? Keeping that wall up, sort of holding that ideological value. Is no, that, it's, is... it's almost more like a compulsion. You know, like you sort of feel like you reported something, you have to write it. And you know it's going to cause a lot of chaos and that like people are going to be unhappy. But ultimately, you know, I, so, yeah, I sort of almost feel like a compulsion. I do this thing sometimes where when I have a, a great scoop that I also in some ways feel is going to stress me out is, is that I'll, I'll start calling people who I know will talk me into it. Mm-hmm. Like I, years ago, I remember when I had this tip about an Uber, it was an Uber story that's too complicated to explain. Oh, here. that's the one where no but, one told you it was off the record. Right. No one told me it was off the record. So I really had every right to report it, but also, you know, like I felt bad. I'd been a bad guest, obviously. I had no food. <laughs> um, I I went and sort of systematically called like 10 of the most aggressive journalists I know. And I was like, what do you think I should do? And they were all like, publish it. And then also I was sort of like locked in uh-huh. to publishing it because I would have, having called these people I really admire, asked them what they to right. do, knowing what they would tell me. And then to back down would have like, it was sort of a way of locking myself into it. Because you think you wouldn't have done it otherwise? Probably would have done it. But that was my way. That's my way of talking myself into things sometimes. How does that square with, there was a short profile of you that Claire Malone wrote in New York Magazine, I don't know, sometime last year. And basically the whole lead of it is like all these people that you've worked with being like, Ben loves chaos. Oh, I do love chaos. I just reread that great Dahlia Lithwick essay about chaos Muppets and order Muppets. <laughs> yeah. I reread it for the first time. I've never felt more, you know, You're a seen. chaos Muppet. Yeah. So how does that square with like being wary of knowing that you're going to create that chaos? Oh, I guess maybe chaos is the wrong word. I love chaos, but I'm not the sadist. Like I don't like getting people fired. Mm-hmm. So the, the fallout from these things is not that fun. And then I feel like there's also this strain that's been interesting for me to watch. You're like, your name is almost like becoming like a verb. It's like you got like Ben Smithed. And there's this whole straight on Twitter that's like, if Ben Smith calls you, like hang up the phone. Yeah, that's bad. I, don't, I want to please don't hang up the phone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's probably a path for you here, right? Like thinking about like that first question I asked you, which is just about your inbox. You could probably write columns like this for a while does it no feel that way no i don't think that's true at all like there aren't lots of media companies where the officers of the company are impersonating <laughs> other people and okay, committing alleged enough, securities fraud no fair i don't enough. think that's true at all actually like and the reason i mean and i think after the ozzy story people were like oh man is every digital media company like it's, is this a sign of how everyone is a fraud and it's like no this is a great story because it's like i've never heard of anything like that <laughs> you know i don't think there are I mean, this is, again, like, this is the media industry. We're not in the arms industry. We're not even in politics. Like, the biggest things that are really bad in media are, like, when we start wars and perpetuate racism, and they're often not a single decision made on a phone call or something like that. You know, so it's like, and those are great stories, but they're not stories that get somebody fired, right? And they're complicated stories. And I don't think there's an infinite number of stories of people committing sort of easily documented crimes mm. in the media business. I mean, you know, Harvey Weinstein was the biggest. But no, I, I don't think you could write a column like this every week. Though maybe that makes me like overly optimistic about the business. If you feel optimistic this far into the job, I think that's a good sign. I mean, honestly, in a way, like the thing that gets you fired is usually something that is actually outside of the norm. Mm-hmm. Where do the stakes of this beat fit with other beats you've been on? You know, I covered presidential politics for probably more than of my career than anything else. A lot of that is gossip and personality and rumor. And then some of it is also life and death and, you know, famine and huge stakes. And it's in those things are totally intermingled. I mean, I think I sort of am at heart a political reporter and that's my favorite beat, I mm-hmm. guess. But I mean, I don't think I guess I don't really think of media as, as that distinct a beat. Right. It has either these big companies and there are elements of it that are really a business beat and then there are these sort of cultural threads and then there is politics you know and, and it's all sort of woven together it all feels connected so it doesn't feel like you're like um like studying abroad on the media beat and you're gonna get back to politics at some point no although it does feel a little i mean it's not abroad it's like i'm like in my house <laughs> like, like writing about my right, it's family like, it's like uh it's more like, like the pandemic and you moved back in with your parents yes totally and like there is something really like weirdly intimate about covering this bit you knew carlos you'd like gone on his show yeah you 
are an incredibly well networked person in this world. Like you often know the people that you're writing about. Yeah. How do you balance that? I don't know. I just don't balance it. <laughs> I mean, you know, and I think when you're a beat reporter and I came up again covering like New York City Council. Yeah. Like I knew all the people I wrote about. You see them every day. And, and I grew up in sort of in bureaus. Like I had a desk in the basement of City Hall. And when you're in those bureaus, your connections are much more to your competitors and then to the people you cover than they are to your colleagues. Do you find that like your friends in media are cagier with you now or more open? You know, they really should be. You know, I don't know. I I, I don't have, I don't know. Friend, I don't, I get, do I not have that many friends? <laughs> what are friends? <laughs> the, I mean, I don't know. I, I, then I, who are your friends <laughs> and who are your sources? <laughs> no, it's, comp- I mean, that actually is authentically complicated. I mean, I think, you know, media people generally are pretty obviously sophisticated about what's on the record and what's off the record. Yeah. But I do think when you're covering, like particularly, I mean, the most, in the most extreme case, when I'm writing about the New York Times, I'm not going to like ambiguously shift something on the record that somebody said in private conversation. Like I do try really hard not to be deceptive. Has it been fun covering the times? No, it's awful. Like (laughs) there's nothing. I mean, it's just obviously a disaster to cover your employer. It's harder to imagine a conflict of interest stronger than they pay me money every two weeks. (laughs) And if they don't like me, they can fire me. Like that's like pretty strong conflict of interest. And it's not, and the times also has a very strong tradition of independence and I think has been like shockingly respectful and nice about my reporting on the times. But obviously if what you want is an independent view of the New York times, you should probably not be going to employees of the New York times for that. One would think, but it's almost impossible to cover this moment in media and not cover the times. Yeah, that's true. And I think it's a big blind spot for this beat. I do cover the times some. Yeah. But I think I, if it's I, been a but while. if I didn't work for the times, I'd cover more. And I also, again, like I'm very like story driven. Like I think I can, slice off specific stories and report them out about the times but i'm not going to write a piece that's like you know if i had dean Backe's job here's what i'd do right it's five pieces of advice for my boss you know <laughs> just like and you know people should hear that and think huh like it's hard for him to cover the times fairly like that's obviously true yeah i actually can't imagine a world in which if you got a story like the ones that you've broken in the last couple of months about the times that you'd go pretty hard Oh, yeah, of course. If I, right, if I have a tip, if I have a story, I will obviously report it out, which I did with the Donald McNeil story, right. with the Rukmini Kalamachi story. But there's another genre of story, which is, hey, what's really going on here? And like, yeah, what should like, they do? The, and like, the, like the trend thing. And there's also like a Kremlinology yeah. piece of it, which you have done in the past elsewhere. Yeah, I wrote a piece for BuzzFeed about succession at the New York Times, which I think would just be hard to do from inside the Times and weird. And if you were, it's also you think about like, if I'm a reader, do I trust that this is on the level? Yeah. And I think even if it is on the level, I think a reader would be right to think, this is so weird. Like, can I really trust this? Are we sure he's not actually writing in a way to like boost his favorite candidate or protect himself from retribution or whatever? Yeah, it's a weird dance, right? Because like you can't write about the times because people will be distrustful. And also the times is as big a part of the 2021 media story as literally anything yeah, it's America. It's a huge, important institution. You can't not write about it. Right. And so I you, think people also will not trust you if you never write about it. So I think my solution has been when I have a really clean story that I can just sort of apply normal reporting techniques to a story that happens to be at the New York Times and report the hell out of it. And here's an interesting thing that people didn't know about, maybe the Times didn't want them to know about, and here's what actually happened. Yeah. Like, you know, that, that sort of is incidentally said at the Times. I think that's probably where I can add value. I think there's also there's a different function, which is a public editor, which is essentially to second guess editorial decisions. And I think that's a horrible job. There's a third thing too, which is about like the business of the place. Yeah. And I think that you broke that the Times was gonna buy cereal. Ser- yes. Which is like another interesting world of it, right? Which is like you can break little pieces of news, but then also you have that perspective yourself because you were like a media executive before this job. Yeah, no, I think the business story is really interesting. And I have, I think, written about the Times in passing and centrally as a business story. Yeah. But again, you know, what if I thought the Times was exaggerating its revenue from one kind of advertising or the other for, for subscriptions or understating or overstating? Like, What if you thought Dean Baquet was impersonating a YouTube executive <laughs> on a fundraising call? Yes, what if I had a suspicion that <laughs> Dean Baquet secretly lived in Los Angeles? Like, would I write that story? <laughs> 
Okay, I note I, I read that in Los Angeles Magazine. I'm not breaking any news here. Yeah, yeah. but I but right. But if if I worked for the Los Angeles Times, I would have written like a huge piece about the editor of the New York Times. Sure, spends a lot of time in L.A. Seems like it's a better city. <laughs> but you know, it's funny. The uh, this is a terrible analogy that I'm going to regret. But reporters who operate in really difficult environments, like in China, in Iran, often think about like what's the story that's going to get me kicked out of the country? Mm-hmm. Eventually, I'm going to get kicked out of the country. I don't want to get myself kicked out of the country for tweeting a picture of a map that labels, you know, Taipei, Taiwan, right? Uh-huh. Like, I want to get picked out, kicked out of the country for a story that reveals yeah, you massive corruption in, in the Chinese elite. And in the very, very tiny world I operate in, you just you pick your battles. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to check these Twitter replies in a second because there's a lot of them. And I feel like uh, I should do this every time. One question that I'm sure is on there, which is also on my list, speaking of these conflicts of interest, is uh, there's this article in Slate last week Mm -hmm. about your stock options with BuzzFeed and how you haven't sold them. What was your response to that piece? Basically, the, the argument was that also you can't cover BuzzFeed right now and you're covering BuzzFeed's competitors. And that is a conflict of interest. I mean, it's really a decision for and question for the Times in some way. Like, it's not my choice how how that's handled. It's the Times' choice. I thought the piece was fair. Yeah. Why haven't you sold them? Uh, Like, this this is just something I would rather... It's not, I think... I think that, like, it's something for the Times to talk about, not for me to talk about. Okay. That's a question for the Times to answer. I won't push you on that anymore. But it's been a year and a half since you left that job. You were running a newsroom. You were managing tons of people... Do you miss either aspect of that? I'd never done that before anywhere. It's a little hard for me. I'm not sure if I miss those things in the abstract. I definitely miss BuzzFeed. Like, I miss the people. I, you know, love working with those folks. Just remain very close with a lot of them. And when I left, I was pretty burned out, but not, I wasn't sort of alienated from it at all. Reporting, you know, reporting, you're sort of like in the, I'm in this like room and it constantly have like the cord from the laptop plugged in and like, <laughs> where it crosses in front of me and I have to step over it because I was too lazy to wire it around. And so I'm knocking the computer off like the makeshift standing desk I've built and like tripping over the coffee cup I left there three days ago. Like there are things about being a solo reporter working at home that drive me crazy. And I miss wandering around a newsroom talking to people about stories. Also there are weeks when I'm like, wow, like I'd like to do five stories. And if only I had like five reporters to assign these stories to. And And it's really fun to work with reporters on stories. Like I loved that. And I don't think I'm a great line editor, Mm -hmm. but I love sort of assigning and and kind of strategizing about how to do stories. What about like managing people? You know, I don't think of myself as like a professional manager. Like I never, I I don't know. I mean, I I really love working with people. I I mean, I love the work and love Mm -hmm. working with people on it. And I think to me, that's, I don't really think of management as sort of an abstract thing. Like, I'm going to come in and manage you. It's like, no, like, we're, we have to do these amazing stories about this thing that we're both obsessed with and I want to help. And I, that's how I always saw the job. Were you ready to move or was this job just too exciting not to do? No, I was ready to move. I mean, both. To run a newsroom, you just need to be so totally committed, sort of emotionally. Yeah. And I was feeling just sort of drained. And so had kind of essentially decided that I needed to start looking around and had in a very preliminary way started to... And this just popped up. Yeah, it just was sort of a perfect opportunity. Were you thinking about Carr's version of the column when you took the job? Um, I did reread every, all of his columns. Did you? Yeah. Have you felt like you were playing off of them in some way? Like, what, what's your relationship to that era of the column? You know, the moment is so different. And the thing that was so great about the way David did it is it was a moment when sort of the news industry was in this sort of defensive, like, fetal position. And most newspaper people writing about the internet were just condemning it. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it was just bad. You know, all these kids these days doing stupid stuff. And right. David was just so totally interested in it. And I think kind of, like, introduced, not in an unskeptical way. He was very skeptical, for instance, of Vice. But but he was just interested in all these new ideas and technologies and people and was interested in kind of introducing them to Times readers and I think kind of to the Times. Yeah. There were a lot of columns that were like, this is an exciting new thing Yeah, that I'm bullish on. I know. And I, I, I loved those columns. It was fun to be part of one of those columns. I, that's not my instinct. Yeah. Like I like tension Yeah, and conflict. I mean, in a way, the conflict was built into those columns, which was that these were these insurgents against a 
establishment that included the New York Times. And that, I think that tension made David's columns exciting without there having to be drama inside the columns always. Mm-hmm. And it's not, that's just sort of not my instinct, I guess. I do feel like, like I have a doc called like next week's column that I'm constantly rearranging all the topics inside. And a lot of the ones that never quite get to the top are like, hey, there's this really cool thing. Right in Detroit that Sarah Alvarez is doing this sort of attempt to deliver news in a really new way and a new idea about news. And I think it's really cool. And I sort of feel like, okay, where's the tension in that? Right. Like, and so, <laughs> so I wound up at, I was went away for a couple weeks over the summer and just realized I had these like things I was really excited about that I hadn't gotten a chance to write about. And yeah. so just sort of piled them all into a column. Right. Yeah. Like you're just going to do like a things I'm excited about roundup every now and again, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder why that is. Why David's why, um, voice was so clear, and there was like he was more of a stylist, and I think he kind of like I don't think I'm that good a writer in a way. I mean, I'm not like an unconfident writer, but I do think that he had a kind of voice and a style, and like a, let me tell you a story, kid. Yeah, which is like a classic style of column and of like the old New York City columnists, the kind of like Jimmy Breslin, you know, like where you can bring things to life. And I, I maybe I don't totally feel I have that skill either. And so like you gravitate towards the reporting rather than the like the point of this column is I'm gonna zoom out and tell you why this thing is exciting. Yeah, no, I've always been totally kind of reporting driven. Is the job fun? Yeah. I mean I, I, I do love reporting. I mean I guess it's I mean it's almost like a personality flaw. Like I love finding stuff out and telling people. Yeah. Do you get bored in jobs? Uh, not really. I mean the thing about reporting, I mean it particularly when you're in a position where you're sort of, you have enough ideas that your editor isn't like, all right, go to the city council meeting and write it. What happened at the <laughs> land use committee? You know, like if I'm bored, I can just like go call somebody up in some place and say like, Hey, I'm coming to, yeah, just to wherever. Let me hang out with you and follow you around to some weird thing you're doing. Do you feel like now being part of the times and being on this role, like, do you feel like any door you want is open for you? You know, by the time this podcast it goes live. I'm not going to be on a roll anymore. Like, I think that's such a fleeting thing. And it's just in any beat reporter, any beat, you feel that and then you don't feel it. I mean, Carr used to talk about that all the time that like his name became David Carr of the New York Times. That was his full name. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess my style of reporting doesn't really open doors. People aren't like, hey, like we have an announcement. Would you like to have the embargoed exclusive on our announcement? Because there's sort of no, like I want tension. Yeah. And that's the story without conflict. Maybe doors are starting to close for you. Yeah, they never were that, were that open. <laughs> I, mean, I don't get a lot of pitches, which is fine. Not none, but not a lot. Yeah, and I think the ones I get are sometimes like people think that my client is really bad, mm-hmm. but it's a really complicated story and he's like medium bad. Yeah. You know, which is actually is often a very interesting kind of story. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts.
All right. What do you say we do in the lightning round? Should yeah, I go sure. To Twitter? Let's go to the tweets. All right. How are you doing on time? Are you okay? I don't know. My phone is off. Great. You have plenty of time. All right. I'm just going to go through these. I'll just ask you them. You can... Uh, wow, what a wild thing to read questions from Twitter like it's 2013. Fuck off, man. This is your idea. <laughs> it was not my idea. Um, okay. Let's see. Oh, this is a kind of nice one to start with. Is there an outcome from your reporting that has particularly surprised you? Sorry, my my I, one of the things about me is I don't have a good memory. Like I sort of live so much in the last few weeks. I'm trying to think of anything that happened in the world previous to the last two weeks. <laughs> um, you know, I think it took me a while just as a reporter. We go way back to realize that the people you're writing about really read you. You write somebody's name, they read it, and and they respond and politicians in particular are very responsive to the press. And there was a story I loved years ago. I loved it partly because of the way it came in. Sorry, this is so not lightning, but, um, I had this blog, readers of the blog would send me tips. A guy who occasionally emailed me, emailed me and said, you know, I just had the weirdest experience. I went, he's a Barack Obama supporter, went to a rally in Michigan somewhere with a friend of his, with a couple of friends of his, one of whom was wearing a hijab. And the, some advanced person sees them and is like, Hey, could you come and sit on the riser behind the candidate? Because they, they were law students, they were wearing suits. And then they see the friend and they're like, actually don't, please. And it was just like so clear that they were screening out people who could look Muslim from being near Obama in a picture. Uh-huh. Because it was a moment when people were like, he's a secret Muslim. I mean, anyway. And so I thought it was, it was like really awful for these kids. And, you know, and really counter to who he was supposed to be and presenting himself as. And... I guess, kind of to my surprise, the story ran, Obama called the girl and apologized, which was, I don't know, sort of a nice small thing, but hmm. also just like, huh, like, all right, like people, they read that story. Like it, you know, so that's like a very small thing. I mean, I'm, I was certainly surprised with the speed at which Ozzy unraveled. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's get another one. Who do you think are the most underrated players in media these days, individuals or organizations? Oh, gosh. Well, I would have said Juliana Loeffler of, of uh, Ippen Media until this week, but now she's like this, you know, hero of German media. The most underrated players. I feel like you sort of insult people by saying they're underrated and also uh, the whole thing. I don't know. A different way to answer that is that a thing that has surprised me about the times is like the depth of the editing core isn't really underrated, but it's something, which is that like I file my column and have a great editor, really edit the hell out of it. And then there's another editor, her name's Phyllis Messenger, who also edits it mm-hmm. and always makes it better and usually catches some idiotic mistake I've made. Mm. And I, I realize this is like an idiotic internet person sort of realization. <laughs> like, wow, those people deserve a lot of credit, you know? Wow, those people are super good at their jobs. Yes. It's part of why uh, the newspaper's very good. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think and this something at BuzzFeed that I really came to appreciate too was like, oh, wow, like copy editors production people is the old word i mean sort of now it includes a lot of social media and stuff yeah but who by the way getting onto the glory don't have their names on things are sort of always undervalued in these newsrooms and how you can figure out how to compensate for that is actually like a real management challenge because the reporters get rewarded by having their names on the stories and getting all this credit well also my sense is that for years and years the times was incredibly averse to having stars which it has now completely flipped its strategy on, loves having stars. You are one of the stars. And my sense is that there's a real gap now between the stars and the second editor on your column who's making a lot better. Yeah, I don't really have a sense of the times. I haven't been there long enough to have like a thought-out opinion on that. But but that said, I mean, has always there were stars in the day of print and Bigfoot and sort yeah, of big but there, swaggering reporters. And there were not and I think full it, page through ads. the whole history. And by the way, actually, this is truer in your business, in audio and particularly in TV, than even than it is in print, which is just that there are these ranks of people who put something together that then has one person's name on it sure. or one person's face. And I do think in this sort of new like labor ecosystem that we're working in, figuring out how to give credit and share credit is really important. And I, I mean, I don't have like a solution, but it's something I think about a lot. Yeah, there was a great essay on that last week in uh, study hall. Yes, there was. Ghostwriter. Yes, I read it. We'll put it in the show Very notes. good. Uh, I feel like I should start naming people. Ashley C. Ford has a great question. Do you think that being quiet about your beliefs makes them more powerful or do you think it's a neutral decision? First of all, Ashley C. Ford 
should think hard about her decision to move to Indianapolis <laughs> and whether that was the right decision or whether she should come back to this neighborhood. And second, I actually don't really see that as so much as a decision. I think I don't have, I mean, I think I, I well, let's see. I mean, in, in sometimes it's a tactical decision to stay mm-hmm. quiet about your beliefs because you are a reporter and you are trying to get people to tell you stuff and your social role is to get people to tell you stuff and you should sort of tactically do whatever, you know, within the bounds of ethics makes sense. Yeah. Um, which can be to trumpet your beliefs or it can be to keep them quiet. And I don't really, I guess I think of that as a tactical decision mm-hmm. in some sense. I also do not have that strong beliefs on a lot of things. I'm sort of wishy-washy on a lot of things. Yeah, I mean... I mean, not on, like, democracy, you know, like, not on obvious. Not, not, and I think to the degree that I have, you know, a lot really strong beliefs, often they're really banal. Like, I think that at BuzzFeed, we, took, we both took heat and got praise sort of undeserved for saying that... You know, we don't think the issues of like racism and marriage equality are issues that we're going to cover like they have two sides. And people were like, wow, that's such a bold stand. It's like, who thinks otherwise? Mm-hmm. It felt sort of banal in a way to say that. And I think all publications, whether they go around saying that or not, obviously have these fairly clear beliefs. Do you think the things that you care more strongly about are about journalism, not about politics or yeah i would say like the place where i'm really like a crazed zealot (laughs) is mostly around like yes we should publish this and it's partly like i guess at some level a sort of truth shall set you free you know that that's a real core value Mm -hmm. but it's not always that easy to justify like sometimes it's better when things are kept secret i mean i think about all those stories that when people go rooting around their own dna and it turns out your father wasn't really your father and like no one needed to know that (laughs) Do you have any feelings now about publishing the Steele dossier that are different than at the time when you were? No. No, hasn't changed. No. I mean, I it was like the reasons for publishing it, I thought were totally obvious and clear at the time and right. I think, you know, was it good for America, good for politics, good for one side or the other, you know, like to publish it? I think that has actually changed repeatedly mm. over time. And I guess I just don't really think about my decision in that context. That's another place where your ability to separate the work from the impact seems pretty useful. Yeah. Okay, let's see what else we got. <laughs> They're pretty funny. Lydia Polgreen, her question is, what substacks would you keep subscriptions to if you couldn't expense them? <laughs> oh my God. I don't know. It's such a luxury to be, this is like the best thing about being a media reporter. <laughs> I'm so, and I, I feel like the people who, if they review my expenses are, thinking about this i hope that they don't take away my substacks because i am subscribed to a lot of substacks um there are very few that i open on a regular basis now partly because there are so many of them you know and i would say i i have been really liking casey newton's platformer although then i opened it the other day and it said i wasn't subscribed so i i may actually in fact not be subscribed to that one although i think i am i think garbage day ryan broderick substack is really excellent i think heather haverleski's substack of which she has two, one more deranged than the other, Dear Polly and Dear Molly. They're both are, great. They're both are, are great. Yeah, those come to mind. Okay. <laughs> Claire Malone, who wrote that profile of you in New York, wonders, what's the biggest fib you've ever told someone profiling you? I, you know, I don't, I don't think I've ever lied to anybody profiling me. It's not like I've been profiled a lot. I think Claire's just asking, did you lie to me? <laughs> did I lie to Claire? No, I did not lie to Claire. All right, I'll let you take that up with Claire. John Dickerson wondering, what's the media story from the past year that you wish you had written about? Oh, that's good. Um, where, what am I most jealous of in a yeah. way? Yeah, what's your jealousy list from the last year um, since you've been on this beat? You know, it's funny. I, I feel like both Sarah Ellison and Margaret Sullivan have had stories that I've been intensely jealous of, and now I'm blanking on what they are. I mean, you know, like revelatory stories about Fox News are really, really important stories, and I know I've read a bunch and been jealous of them, and I'm struggling slightly to remember who wrote which one. Okay, so you can't think of any, but you know they exist. This is such a, like, sort of back-scratchy thing to say. You, Max, told me that you were launching a podcast, this is not sponsored, called 70 Over 70. Yeah. And I was like, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard, (laughs) LOL. Who wants to hear from those people? Yeah, um, and we were like in a car together, and and I and and you, and I just was like, uh huh, okay, next question. And then Margaret Sullivan did a column the next week that was like, 
this is the most sort of brilliant, heartwarming, makes you feel good about yourself, makes you want to share this column and tell everybody about it thing I've ever heard of. And I was just like, I'm such an idiot. This was such a good column <laughs> and also such a good podcast idea. And I've been listening to it. Uh, well, thanks. I will say I was feeling very vulnerable that day that we talked. It was like the day before it launched. Right. And I was very fucking twerked about it. And I was like, yeah, man, I got this show coming out tomorrow. I don't know. I don't know. And you were like, oof, I don't know, man. <laughs> I, I'm not sure that's a good idea, uh, which was great. Really, really, really pumped me up. Made me feel great. Uh, let's see what else we got here. Lots of questions about your stock options. I assume you want to talk about that at length more. That is actual silence. That's not something we put in. Um, let's see. Here's a question about BuzzFeed. That's not about the future of BuzzFeed. Mm -hmm. But this might be just like the Venn diagram of my yeah. Twitter. There are lots of people asking me about what happened with podcasting at BuzzFeed. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It's the Venn diagram of your Twitter. I mean, we didn't... I mean, we, I really screwed up the business of it like didn't see where it was going didn't understand the resources it needed didn't fund it enough to give people the support they needed to succeed but did fund it enough to have people incredibly overworked and yet also not get doing work they were i don't know it just we just screwed it up honestly like i, I don't really have a have like a good ex like a like we you know i think didn't it we sort of started investing in it at a moment just and sort of hit a cash crunch in our own business at a moment we didn't have revenue from it and didn't kind of have the patience and the vision to see that like where the business was headed that there was going to be two years from now huge demand right for shows with big audiences and you know, yeah, I mean there's a world people. there's a world in which buzzfeed had a huge lead totally totally and i mean you know Tracy and Heaven are huge talents and another round was so good and like it was just a huge failure that we didn't figure out how to support it Okay, on the record for that one. Do you have, you have regrets about it? Oh, absolutely. Plus, Jenna Weiss-Berman. I mean, come on. Uh, let's see, let's see, let's see. I did get to work with Jenna, so that's some consolation. I know, I no, know. No, actually, did. I mean, just seriously, like, there were really great people just all over the place. Uh, many of whom have gone on to do to some do of the best. To do, obviously, really great stuff, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah it's like a real all-star team of talent. Did leading a newsroom change how you work as a reporter or a columnist? Yeah, I think it did. It really helped me think like, okay, what's the story here? In this particular beat, I do think I have like a handle on the choices that editors are making and that sort of media execs are making in a way that, you know, I think sometimes makes me more sympathetic, you know, to like how hard those things can be. Maybe sometimes it makes me too sympathetic to the man. I don't know, to the bosses. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. sometimes there are moments when I think that like, I'll be like, oh, I've been in like that kind of complicated situation and sort of sympathize with that person who screwed it up. That's interesting. So you have some sympathies you didn't have before. Yeah, I mean, my basic sympathies like are for reporters. I remember, I remember Jamison pointing out to me once that I was telling some boring, complicated, abstract story in the newsroom in which I was... It was a story about a reporter and editor and like that I was telling it as though I was the reporter when obviously I was in fact the editor. <laughs> and like I do think like my basic identification is with a reporter. But I think like for this beat, I do have a lot more just sort of understanding for like the jobs and the work both of like the execs and also just of the people who as a reporter out in the field, I had just like not really interacted with much who were putting the product together, who were designing it, who yeah. were publishing it and who were not getting credit and who I think like often reporters like are totally unfamiliar with what they're doing because they're sort of just out in the field, like throwing their information over the wall, dealing with one editor. Now you have some And then sense. being like, why are these annoying people asking me to approve a tweet? And it's like, oh, actually, that's an important part of the story. Like, stop being such a dick. Right. You have some sense of the apparatus and then some sense of what it's like to be making those decisions. It's interesting to me because I feel like also if I had to say like what your one obsession is, it's like basically power. I think all good stories are about power. I mean, I, don't th I think that's true of most reporters mm -hmm. across all sorts of different beats. Do you feel as though you have more power now or less power than you did when you were running BuzzFeed? I mean, in different ways, right? When you actually can get people to do stuff, which is always as a newsroom kind of a, like it's not a normal organization. You can't really get people to do stuff, but you can encourage people to do stuff. That is a certain kind of power. I mean, the power of the times, though, is a real thing. I mean, and it is something where I, I sort of have this awareness that I'm kind of playing with live ammunition and that, you know, and that it's not my brand, you know, and, and that the times is more cautious in certain ways. There are stories that I've had that certainly I would have run with that they didn't think the sourcing was good enough. And 
I was frustrated when those stories turned out to be true. But at the same time, I think it's the there's something basically appropriate about the Times being more careful and extra careful. And, you know, I don't know if the story about Ozzy had run elsewhere, if the unraveling would have been so fast. I mean, I think with stories like that, the problem was that they basically committed alleged securities fraud. Like it was a big problem. It wasn't there was it wasn't it kind of didn't matter where it was reported. That was going to be a big problem when their investors found out about it. But there's no way it spirals the way that it did. But there is a, the there's a, yeah, there's just sort of a force with which a time story hits. Yeah. It reminds me when I was at the Daily News when back when in the late days of it mattering a lot, mm-hmm. what was on the cover of a tabloid, what was inside didn't matter that much. But if you got the wood, you, so you have some big splashy story on the wood and then all lo- the local TV news starting at six would just be like talking about it and radio. <laughs> and so by like 7.30 in the morning, if the subject of your story is aggrieved and trying to push back, like it's basically too late. Hmm. And there's also like, you know, there is the physical daily news on every, you know all over the place, like a sort of billboard of your story. The insiders have all read it, but then all the broadcasters have picked it up and talked about it. And it's just like too late. Like that was actually in some sense the most power I've ever felt I had when I got on the wood of the daily news. Hmm. <laughs> How do you feel about the lack of diversity on the media beat? That's coming from Emma Crew Gravum. So it's a good question. There are a lot of really good reporters who aren't white on the beat, and so I don't want to sort of like, you know, erase them in answering the question. You know, that said, it's you know it reflects the sort of who the insiders are in some sense. Like the media beat is the inside of the inside, and so it's probably not surprising. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you feel like you can do or do you do to combat that? I mean, not stick around on the media beat for too long. <laughs> Is that your plan? How long can you do this for? I don't know. You're like stewing in your own juices. Eventually, <laughs> you like you become Gollum. <laughs> I feel like you got a long ways between here and Gollum. Mm. All right. I got two more for you, then I'll let you go. One is from your former colleague, Katie Natopoulos, who asks, which newsrooms should unionize next? Um, you know, I tend not to say who should unionize. It does, does seem like Politico is in the middle of... Or just about to unionize. I don't know, Katie. <laughs> we'll take it up on our portal conversation. Man, all these questions are about your stock. What does it feel like that so many people care about your stock? It is totally news to me that that many people care. People give a shit. That's good to know. <laughs> um, all right, one more question. This is mine, which is, it seems to me like from the outside, there's no static for you. Like, you love this shit. Yes. Is there something that you're addicted to about it? How did you find the thing that you love this much? Like you're, forgive me, like you're like a little weird about it. You're really into it in what feels to me like a pretty pure way. Chaotic and kind of complicated, but like there's not a lot of space between what you're doing and what you want to be doing. Why do you think that is? It's definitely true. Like I feel like I like the job too much almost. And by the job, I mean reporting. I mean, yeah. I think I could be happily covering some other beat somewhere else and loving it. And I, I don't know. I mean, I do think there's some like kind of personality flaw deep in there of wanting to like, you know, find stuff out and tell people and getting a <laughs> kick out of that. Like I'm not sure that's a totally sane or healthy personality trait. But it is definitely for me like a personality trait. I mean, I, I don't feel like it's work. Yeah. Most days, except when I'm like knocking over the laptop. Yeah. And I genuinely enjoy talking to all sorts of different people. And I don't, I mean, I like most of the people I cover. Like I think that other in political reporting, certainly there's a kind of reporter who thinks that their job is basically to pull the masks off of these monsters. And I generally tend to think all these people with some exceptions, but are like weird and complicated and often doing really awful things, but aren't you know, aren't necessarily irredeemable or like impossible to understand that they're interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I guess, I don't know. Do you think there's something you're like chasing? Is there some way that whatever you're trying to... Some rosebud thing? Yeah. It's like, can this thing be satisfied or is that not the point at all? Like the point is just the doing it. Yeah, no, I don't think I have some destination. I think the point, I just enjoy doing it. Well, thanks for doing this. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Radliff. Our editor this week was Gabriella Saldivia. Our intern was Susan Peterson. Thanks to them. Thanks to Ben, of course, for uh, letting me come over and ask him some questions. But maybe the biggest thanks to everyone who did my job for me and offered questions on Twitter. I got a little frazzled in the moment, and I didn't mention everyone by name, and I feel bad about that. 
Also, a couple of questions were asked by multiple people, and I didn't mention names. Anyway, thank you, Maya Lau. Thank you, Rehan Harmansi. Thank you, Rob Price. Thank you, Elizabeth Lopato. Thank you, Eli Anders. Thank you, Claire Tai. Thank you, Tom Dreisbach. Thank you, Tom Skoka. Thank you, Jody Avergan. And thank you to Alex Sujung Laughlin, who both asked the question about the podcast department at BuzzFeed, which I think is not a question that Ben has answered before and certainly not in the way that he did. But she's also the author of Ghostwriting, the essay published on Study Hall recently that Ben and I talked about in the show. Anyway, thank you all for those questions. I should really do that more often. You're clearly much better at this than I am. We'll see you next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.